In the wild forests of Wales, there lived once a boy called Percival with his mother. Never another living soul did he meet for the first 15 years of his life, nor did he learn anything of the ways of men and women in the world. But Percival grew strong and hardy in the wild wood, of deadly aim with the dart, and simple of heart, honest and upright. Now, one day, as he wandered alone, discontented suddenly and longing for he knew not what, a new sound fell upon his ears. Not the voice of any bird, or the music of wind or water, yet music it was, of a kind that set his heart leaping, he knew not why. He paused, listening in a leafy glade, and as he waited there, five knights came riding towards him, their armor jingling, and the bridles of their horses ringing like silver bells. Greetings, fair youth! cried the first knight, reining in his steed and smiling down at Percival. Nay, look not so stricken with wonder. Surely you have seen our like before. Indeed not, said Percival. And truth to tell, I know not what you are, unless you be angels straight out of heaven, such as those of whom my mother teaches me. Come, tell me, noble sirs, do you not serve the king of heaven? Him do we serve indeed, said the knight, crossing himself reverently. And so also do all men who live truly in the realm of Logris. But on earth we serve his appointed emperor, the noble King Arthur, at whose round table we sit. It is he who made us knights, for that is all we are. And you too he will make a knight, if you but prove yourself worthy of that great honor. How may I do that? asked Percival. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome once again to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others such as Roger Lancel and Green discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, occasional wanderer through the wastes of Wales. And with me today, I have friend of the show, Eric Geddes. How you doing, Eric? Oh, good. Yeah. Good, good. I'm so excited to talk about Roger Lancel and Green with you and, and the specifically King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thank you for, thank you for suggesting it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and listeners, this is actually when Eric originally reached out to us, it was about Roger Lancel and Green and that he wanted to do a show on, on Green and on his work. And I'm happy to finally be doing this after his generously joining us on a number of other podcasts as well. Now you said something intriguing earlier. You said you shared a birthday with one of the Inklings. Yeah, I didn't know it for years because I wasn't even aware he existed for a long time. But when I looked him up, Charles Williams, I Oh wow. We share a birthday on September twentieth. That is awesome. Yeah, he was born eighteen eighty six. I was born nineteen eighty nine, so he's about hundred and three years older than me. That's but, great. Um I have always wanted my birthday to correspond to some good literary illusion or something. So whenever I get to 
Bilbo's birthday in Fellowship of the Ring. I'm like, the 22nd? You couldn't have put it two days earlier? <laughs> like, And then McDonald, I think, died on September 18th. Okay, yeah. And I, I was like, come on. And then I learned about Williams and I read his like blurb on Wikipedia and yeah, it said September 20th and I was like, finally! I share a birthday with an inkweed. That's that's amazing. That is super cool. Holy yeah. coincidence, Batman. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't think I share a birthday with any of them and i also don't think any of them died on my birthday but i could be no. i could be wrong it's you know it's not not a great well, you don't um, have to that, that was like i would have been i was an in queen's fan regardless but that was just something that meant a lot to me even though i had nothing to do with choosing it yeah yeah oh that's super cool so uh, listeners again the way that I met Eric was he reached out to the show. He emailed the show, inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com and suggested we do this. I'm really glad he did because it's been awesome getting to know you, Eric, and, and, and making your acquaintance and hearing your thoughts about these books. What was it about, about Roger Lancelin Green's work that really, you know, kind of made you want to reach out in the first place and, and, and suggest that we, you know, dedicate a show to him? I think it was just like a long time ago, I had heard of him and I knew he was a friend of Lewis's, but I, I had no idea that he'd written all these, I guess, simplified would be an okay word, even though that sounds bad, all these different versions of classic mythologies. And then... Yeah, I found that out, and I read some, and I was like, this guy is great. Even when he's just retelling stuff, because he's good at describing things, he's good at, like, putting a picture in your head of what's going on. And I thought, how come I've never heard of this guy? And then I found this podcast, actually, and... I listened to a whole bunch and I was meanwhile getting as many of these books as I could get my hands on. And I, yeah, so I just reached out and I was like, you guys ever consider doing one on this guy? Yeah, um, yeah. And he's really like, I don't know much about him. I, I yeah, it's just. It's weird. There's so much scholarship on Lewis and Tolkien and even Williams, but some of the others, including Green, just don't get mentioned. And I don't yeah. really know why that is. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about that and a little bit about Green. And and listeners, if you happen to know more about Green and I make a mistake, please, please do correct me. But this is what I was able to gather. You know, you're absolutely right to call attention first to where he rewrote important myths and legends, because that's really what he's best known for. And I think that's probably, I suspect that's probably part of the reason he's not as well known as a lot of the other Inklings, because even though he's incredibly influential in a way, you know, just as just as Lewis and Tolkien were in that everybody reads these or or you know, everybody in like the 50s and 60s, especially read King Arthur, read his Robin Hood, read his Norse myths. They're still 
they're retellings, right? They're mm -hmm. re retellings of better known works and, and simplifications of better known works. He, he did fiction, which I have not read and I would like to read, but he, he did, you know, his, his own stories as well, but those didn't for whatever reason, become as influential as, as the original stories that Lewis and Tolkien wrote. Yeah, um, they're really hard to get a hold of. Oh man, they are. Yeah. I tried to get a hold of a few and yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult, but I, I'm really curious about them, especially if they're, you know, planted in the soil of some of the greatest legends and myths. I imagine they're decent. I imagine they're, they're pretty, pretty enjoyable, but I think, I think also part of it though, is that he's classed with the Inklings, I think mainly, and people can correct me on this. I think mainly it was not so much the Thursday night stuff that he went to as the Tuesday morning stuff where he would just kind of join Lewis and Tolkien and Warney at the, at the burden baby at the, at the Eagle and child in the mornings. And, and it was also, you know, he was, he was considerably younger than you know than, than lewis and tolkien were um, he was born in i believe 1918 so that puts him kind of in the next generation so but you know despite all of that he was incredibly um, influential on the world of literature because he's very influential on lewis's work he was a, he was one of lewis's best friends later in lewis's life and there probably would not have been a chronicles of narnia um, and, and in fact, there wouldn't have been a Chronicles of Narnia because it would, even if it was published, it would have been called something else because Green came up with the term Chronicles of Narnia and he based it on another Chronicles of something or other. I forget the name exactly that Andrew Lang used to write because, because Green was a big Andrew Lang scholar. Andrew Lang famously wrote fairy tales in, in the 19th century. And Green was very interested in Victorian children's stories. So when Lewis, but, but not only did he come up with the name Chronicles of Narnia, he was instrumental in encouraging Lewis to write more of the Chronicles of Narnia. And Lewis always showed the first drafts of the Chronicles to him rather than to Tolkien, because as we all know, <laughs> Tolkien did not like the Chronicles of Narnia, or, or, or at least did not like the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe you know, when it was first sort of being created. He, he, well, you know, he, well, he was a bit of a he was a real perfectionist, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, you're crossing the streams. Don't cross the streams of literature. That's right. Yeah. I always think of it as Tolkien was a purist in a kind of romantic way. And Lewis is so always looking for parallels. And so for Lewis, you can, you can mix, you know, Northern giants with satyrs and fawns and, and, dwarves and 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 whatever else mm -hmm. because they're all they, they all gesture towards something greater or bigger in in, in their own different ways and 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 mm -hmm. you know he he kind of saw the world i think a little more the way medievals saw it whereas tolkien was a little more romantic and, and tolkien despite the fact that he's an incredibly accomplished medievalist his love of philology you know, philology was really fostered by the, the the sort of romantic vision of the world. But but yeah, Green was super enthusiastic about the Chronicles of Narnia. He he loved the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Tolkien actually wrote to him to complain about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and was like, it really won't do, you know. And and Green 
green is like, no, I, I really like it. I think it's, I think it's, you know, great. And so, so how did, how did Lewis and Green's friendship begin? Green actually started out as Lewis's, one of Lewis's students. Green went to Oxford and one incredible, Incredibly, you know, Oxford works differently from American colleges for the most part. You don't have classes, you have a tutor, and then there are lectures that you go to, and then you pass exams. And so Green was one of the many, many, many Oxford students that were in attendance at Lewis's Prolegomena to Medieval and Renaissance Literature lectures, where he sort of gave this overview of the medieval world, right? This is basically like, hey, here's what you need to know in order for medieval literature to make sense to to you, right? Here's here's the stuff that the medievals were reading. Here's the way they conceived of the world. And, you know, this was absolutely what Green was interested in. And so when he would attend the lectures beginning in 1938, he would sit up as close to Lewis as he possibly could, right? Which you don't really need to do that, right? Lewis has a booming voice, but I guess he didn't want to miss anything, right? Mm -hmm. and, and Lewis being Lewis, always forgot his watch. And so, you know, even, even when you are the great C.S. Lewis and everyone comes to your lectures, you still probably want to have a watch on hand when you're lecturing. So he would usually just ask his students to lend him a watch. And usually of the students that were closest to him, Green was you know, right up there, like practically at his feet, right? So very often he would ask Green for his watch. And so gradually they got to know each other. They they would go and, you know, have a pint or or coffee or whatever else. And 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 you know, that's kind of how they they struck up a friendship. And he was one of, like I said, Lewis's better friends later in Lewis's life, even though he was a good deal younger than Lewis. After Green took his BA in 1940. He stayed on at Oxford to write a B-lit thesis, kind of like, you know, postgraduate work. And it was on Andrew Lang as a writer of fairy stories and romances, which he which he finished in 1944. He, you know, it's it's no accident, obviously, that he's best known now for his children's tales, right? Because Victorian children's tales and the Victorian age was kind of the golden age of children's tales, right? That that was that was his specialty. And he was especially interested not only in Andrew Lang, but also in Lewis Carroll and J.M. Barry. But he wrote on Andrew Lang. His supervisor for this was, was someone else who knew Lang's work very well, J.R.R. Tolkien, who who also became a good friend of Green. And so so Green There's attended. A... Yeah. In the introduction to, I think it's in Tales Before, there's a little blurb about each of the authors before you start reading their piece. And in that one, I think it was Green at one point went talking a book of H. Ryder Haggard's stories. And yeah, and I I thought that was interesting though that they were, they had gotten to be that close that he felt he could do that, and I think they were, he was surprised but also really happy that he found another person who liked Haggard's story so much. Yeah, that's really cool. Lewis loved H. Ryder Haggard as well, and and you know tended to, you know, use it as his like kind of like. I don't know, pleasure reading, right? Just kind of the the sort of 
yeah, the the type of books that are not too taxing, but still enjoyable to to read. But uh, yeah. And so, yeah, as I, as I said before, Green attended a bunch of Tuesday morning Inklings meetings um, over the years. I believe it's, it's hard. To, it's hard to say who's an Inkling and who was just like drinking at the bar in the morning with, with you know, the Lewis brothers and, and Tolkien. And that point has never embarrassingly been entirely clarified to me. Did, did you have to read it? you know, did you have to meet in the rabbit room to do that? I don't think so because, you know, especially later on the site of these meetings tended to move around and not just be at the Eagle and child. So, so yeah, if, if people have ideas of how much of an inkling he was, please let me know. He's at least as much one as Dorothy L. Sayers and we've covered her, right. And certainly more of one than George McDonald and we've covered him. So he's, he's definitely, you know, someone we should cover, but uh, yeah. Um, uh, so he, he did a lot of things throughout his life. He was an actor. He was a teacher. He was an antiquarian bookseller. He was probably the foremost scholar of Victorian children's literature and was especially interested in the lives and work, as I said, of Lewis Carroll and J.M. Barry. You also mentioned Neville Coghill. Yeah, I think Neville Coghill was, well, he was the translator of the Canterbury Tales, I think into modern English at one point. And okay. he and he had he was another friend of Lewis and Tolkien's. And he at one point had the Canterbury Tales made into a musical and performed. Oh, that's awesome. I, I have no idea if Green was in the musical, but I know that he was involved in the theater and that he was, I think Coghill was like the scriptwriter, as opposed to the director. But yeah, he, he was still connected to him through that. So that yeah, gives him even more credentials if you yep. want to call it that. Yeah, so he was friends with all the right people at Oxford, namely, namely all the Inklings. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. And yeah, and he did he did a, a good deal of acting, and Coghill also. You know, very well known for his for his acting and and I believe his directing, but uh, yeah. So Green's Green's father dies, and making Green Lord of Poulton Hall, uh, so he moves back home to Wirral near near Cheshire to this great old mysterious house, which contained among other things an old library dating from the time of Queen Anne. I was actually in this library and you can, if you look up Neville Coghill, you can see a picture of him in his library sitting in front of all of these amazing looking old books, right? But it's in that library that he wrote most of his works, both his own stories, such as The Luck of Troy and The Wonderful Stranger, as well as his more famous works, which again are the retellings of myths and legends like The Adventures of Robin Hood, Heroes of Greece and Troy, Myths of the Norsemen, again, incredibly influential in the 20th century and, and now as well. Green encouraged Lewis, but Lewis also encouraged Green in his writing and Lewis's favorite of Green's works or Green's retellings was the work that we'll be discussing today, which is King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, which Lewis said was even better than Mallory before taking it back and saying, well, no, not that good, but you know what I mean. It's just a great compliment. It's a huge compliment. 
Yeah, yeah. And and when he said better than Mallory, he he means listeners Mallory's Le Mort Docteur, which is sort of the standard most influential Arthurian work in English. Don't think that's an overstatement. I think that's yeah, you know, pretty no. pretty much. But but yeah, Lewis is like, oh yours is better, Green. Well, not really. <laughs> I think another writer, TH White, would have had a big problem with that statement. But yeah. The yeah. Once and Future King guy. I've got to admit, I haven't made it through The Once and Future King, and it's funny. Lewis, by the way, did not much like The Once and Future King, from from what I hear anyway. But but he did like Green's book a lot. In Lewis's later years, Green continued to be you know, close friends with them. He's, he was the one, Green was the one who took Lewis, who took Jack and his, and his wife, Joy, Joy Gresham, who was quite sick by that point, took them to Greece because, because Green would go to Greece every, every summer with his own wife, June. And so they took the Lewis's along with them and it ended up kind of changing a trip that, or changing a time in Lewis's life that was really dismal and hard into something you know and they she, he and he and joy were able to make some amazing memories there um, in greece before she died it's kind of the only time that lewis aside from i suppose world war one that he went you know that that he left the, the british isles lewis called this trip a pub crawl through the glittering isles of greece and another kind of note in their friendship when lewis's last book the discarded image was published it was dedicated to Roger Lancelin Green. And this must have been especially meaningful to, to Green because the discarded image is the prolegomena to medieval and Renaissance literature written up in book form, right? So those lectures at which Lewis first began to borrow young Roger Lancelin Green's watch becomes this book, The Discarded Image, which is which ends up being published, finished before Lewis died, but obviously, but but published after his death and is his therefore his very last book dedicated to Roger Lancelin Green. Green collaborated with Walter Hooper on the first full-length biography of Lewis. And and, and most of what I just shared was gathered from, from actually Walter Hooper's own edition of the collected letters of C.S. Lewis. So that's where I'm getting my information from. But yeah, thoughts and reactions? I do know that this is a little bit of a tangent, but I do know that Green got was super into Greek mythology, and he actually starts out his Greek tales of the Greek heroes with this very long, like two or three page description of what Greece looks like, and then what the culture is like, and, and then goes into the myths. But I thought that was a really, really cool way of opening. Book, yeah. even if it's slower, but yeah, and it shows his familiarity with with Greece as well, right? Oh, yeah. uh, that yeah. he not only had read the stories, but he'd done the he'd done the traveling, right? See, since he had gone there every every summer. So let's see. So this is from Diana Pavlik Glyer, the company they keep. Another person who had a strong impact on Lewis's writing is Roger Lancelin Green. His influence is particularly evident in the Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, Green provided the name for the cycle, inspired by Andrew Lang's Chronicles of Pantoflia. Green became involved in the project quite early. He read two chapters of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe in March 1949 and declared that they were very good indeed, though a trifle self-conscious. So this is, you know, 10 years after he 
is, you know, one of the attendees of, of Lewis's lectures. Green read all seven of the books in manuscript and his encouragement and criticism shaped the series in a number of ways. He edited the work, removing some stiffness and cliches and, quote, an occasional forced jocularity. More substantially, he helped Lewis address the stories to children, for in this period, there are very few children in Lewis's life. Lewis had used a lot of slang from his own childhood, which by then had become completely obsolete. So being, being rather more in touch with contemporary children, Green was able to suggest a number of small alterations and improvements, ranging from the deletion of crikey. So Green is the reason that the Pevensey kids don't say crikey as a common exclamation among the young, among the young, to the omission of birds nesting from among the Pevensey children's occupations. Lewis being unaware of the revolution against egg collectors achieved by Arthur Rance. So apparently in the original Narnia, one of the things that they wanted to do to pass the time or in the original Lion of the Wardrobe was, was collect eggs from birds' nests. And Green was like, Green was like, no, kids don't really do that anymore because they think it's cruel. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, let's see. He also like you know, gave some advice on the magician's nephew where Lewis originally had Diggory staying with a guy named Pierce Plowman. Well, he was in charge. Yeah. So like he apparently in the original novel, Diggory made several trips into Charn and oh. stayed with this like plain spoken guy named Pierce Plowman while, while there and along with his wife and, and Green was like, yeah, that doesn't really fit with the rest of the book. So Lewis abandoned that book for a little while, actually, and then came back to it and took the part out that, that Green didn't like. So that is what I was able to find on Green in the, you know, the, the, past, the past couple of days. Listeners, if you know more and would like to contribute, please do. I'm sure there's lots more to know. So... So, so today we're going to be talking about Lewis's favorite of Green's works, King Arthur and his Knights at the Round Table, which is based on a few fairly well-known Arthurian stories. Most importantly, probably Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, which is sort of like this 15th century prose compendium retelling of a ton of different Arthurian stories, especially some of the, the French prose romances. So, so, so there's that, but there's also, you know, stories by, uh, or romances by Chrétien de Troyes, who was um, probably the most important Arthurian author from 12th century France. And then, you know, works like Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, which were not well known in Mallory's day, but have become well known since then because they're just so dang good. And so Green takes a lot of a lot of these works and combines them with Mortarteur and streamlines it and manages to, I mean, for my money, streamline it a good deal more than Mallory was able to. I'll have to um, take your word on that because I've never been able to. I think I started listening to Mallory once and I I couldn't get very far into it before I turned it off. It is it is it is a feat to get through Mallory and to get through Mallory remembering the things that happened. Yeah. <laughs> because 
Oh man, Mallory. To, actually, but but yeah, we'll stop talking about Mallory for now. Although I'm sure we'll bring him back up and talk about Green's King Arthur and his Knights at the Round Table. We're going to be talking really just about two chapters of this book. Book one, chapter one, The Two Swords, which is about the sword and the stone, which just about everybody knows that story, right? But also Excalibur, which is not the same thing as the sword and the stone, according to most stories. But then we'll skip over to book two, chapter seven, Sir Percival of Wales. So let's talk about let's talk about the two swords, the the first chapter. And I'm gonna just read a little bit of it to get us into it. And then we can just kind of talk about the chapter in general, what you liked, what you didn't like, what it reminds you of. Then the land of Britain fell upon days more evil and wretched than any which had gone before. King Uther's knights, that's Arthur's father, King Uther's knights fought amongst themselves, quarreling as to who should rule. And the Saxons, seeing that there was no strong man to lead the Britons against them, conquered more and more of Britain. Years of strife and misery went by until the appointed time was at hand. Then Merlin, the good enchanter, came out from the deep, mysterious valleys of North Wales, which in those days was called Gwynedd, through Powys or South Wales, and passed on his way to London. And so great was his fame that neither Saxon nor Britain dared molest him. Merlin came to London and spoke with the archbishop, and a great gathering of knights was called for Christmas Day, so great that all of them could not find a place in the abbey church, so that some were forced to gather in the churchyard. In the middle of the service, there arose suddenly a murmur of wonder outside the abbey. For there was seen, though no man saw it come, a great square slab of marble stone in the churchyard, and on the stone an anvil of iron, and set point downwards a great shining sword of steel thrust deeply into the anvil. So that's the appearance of the sword in the stone. And, you know, most, most of you can... Listeners can probably, you know, fill in what happens next. The young boy, Arthur, who doesn't know he's the heir to the throne of, of Uther Pendragon, happens to come across the sword in the stone, which says, whoso pulleth out this sword from this stone, an anvil, um, is the true-born king of all Britain. And I guess, I guess he doesn't see the writing on the anvil, or maybe he can't read because he's looking for a sword for his big brother, who he thinks is his big brother and is like oh hey here's a sword i can i can get for him because there's a tournament and it'd be a real shame if my older brother didn't have a sword and so he pulls the sword right out brings it to his brother k his brother k recognizes it and tries to pretend like he's king but everybody makes him fess up and to make a slightly longer story slightly shorter arthur is indeed found to be the one who can pull that sword out of that stone, even when they put it back in and try again. And so, so he is crowned King of England. Merlin endorses him. A lot of people don't like it very much, but he's finally made King and holds court. There's a guy to kind of skip on named King Pelinor, who is attacking people in the forest and not letting them pass very much like, and you knew we were going to br have to bring this up, the Black Knight in, in Monty Python on the Holy Grail. So be it. Come, Patsy. None shall pass. What? None shall pass. I have no quarrel with you, good Sir Knight. 
but I must cross this bridge. Then you shall die. I command you, as King of the Britons, to stand aside. I move for no man. So be it. And so Arthur fights him. He, you know, Arthur even asks him, Sir Knight, cried Arthur, why stand you here fighting and striking down all the knights who ride this way? It is my custom to do so, answered Pellinor sternly. And if any man would make me change my custom, let him try at his peril. I will make you change it, cried Arthur, and I will defend my custom, replied Pellinor quietly. So, you know. They're always super polite to, like, talk to each other before they start fighting. Yeah. Well, I mean, a big part of the point, right, is, is honor. And part of the way that you enhance your honor, it's, it's not just it's not just being the strongest one there is, right? But it's it's being able to show that you're a person of good breeding, right? Which means you follow the rules that that kind of govern how honorable knights behave toward each other, right? right. Um, so, but yeah, this this whole like it is my so so they fight and and Pelinor breaks Arthur's sword. He almost kills Ar- Arthur, but Merlin kind of like puts him to sleep and tells him, oh, you would you would really screw Britain over if you if you killed Arthur. And so Arthur's kind of at a loss because he's sort of like, well, he broke my sword. I don't have a sword anymore. And Merlin says, you know, don't, don't worry about that. We're going to uh, take you to the Lady of the Lake and, and she's going to give you a new sword. So, and then Arthur saw a beautiful damsel dressed in pale blue silk with a golden girdle who walked across the water until she stood before him on the shore. I am the Lady of the Lake, she said, and I am come to tell you that your sword Excalibur awaits you yonder. Do you wish to take the sword and wear it at your side? Damsel, said Arthur, that is indeed my wish. For long I have guarded the sword, said the Lady of the Lake. Give me but a gift when I shall come to ask you for one. And the sword shall be yours. This is where Arthur should maybe like hesitate a bit. This is this is the rash vow, and this happens all the time in romances. Someone's like, "Oh, just promise to give me whatever." I'm going to be nice and vague, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do you this favor, right? So, Arthur promises. By my faith, answered Arthur, I swear to give you whatever whatsoever gift you shall ask for. Enter into this boat then, said the Lady of the Lake, and Arthur saw a barge floating on the water before him, into which he stepped. The Lady of the Lake stood on the shore behind him, but the barge moved across the water as if unseen hands drew it by the keel, until Arthur came beside the arm, clothed in white samite. Leaning out, he took the sword and the scabbard. Merlin makes some prophecies, and and Merlin asks, which do you like better, the sword or the scabbard? And Arthur says, I like the sword! Then are you the more unwise, said Merlin gravely. The scabbard is worth ten such swords, for while you wear that magic scabbard, you shall lose but little blood, however sorely you are wounded. Keep well that scabbard, and have good care of it after I am gone from you. For a certain wicked lady, who is nearly related to you, shall seek to steal both sword and scabbard. So Green has toned this down a little bit, the extent to which Merlin is the king of spoilers. In Le Morte d'Arthur, every time Merlin opens his mouth, it's to tell them about something that's going to happen in the future. 
it's almost like Merlin is like a little note that Mallory makes to himself about like, make sure you have this happen in the future after, you know, when, when you get there. But yeah, Merlin, really good at telling you everything that's going to happen. And, and in green, he is a little bit, but not quite to the annoying extent in Mallory. We've got these two swords that we begin the that we begin chapter one of book one with. I mainly just chose it because it's the beginning of the story of Arthur. Do you have any thoughts about this chapter, Eric? Maybe two things. One, I understand that he wanted to get he wanted to get going like right away, which is probably why there's no preamble in this, even though he's pretty good at it in the other mythologies. But I wonder, he just says Merwin the Good Enchanter, and he never goes into any more detail than that. And I guess I can understand why. This is a kid's book. You can't have a Gandalf-like figure that, oh, by the way, comes from a, a demon and like whatever, has dark powers. But I, I was wondering today, why didn't... I don't know if we'll talk about this at the end, but at the end, the epilogue has like a prophecy of Arthur coming back. And I wondered, mm -hmm. why didn't he kind of tone it down, but include Merwin prophesying to Vortigern about Uther coming and, and knocking him out? I think it would have, I think it would have bookended Nicely, but I again I understand why he left it out, and the chapter is like twenty five pages long anyway. So yeah, yeah, which is something that I appreciate about Green, even though this is a kids' book, because modern authors seem to have this thing of oh, kids can't hold attention for that long, and yeah, so this is kind of I think I brought up a long time ago. I like that Green treats his audience like adults. Yeah, in this, and yep. I think I think the length of the chapter really says that. In a way. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and it tracks with what Glyer says in the company they keep about Green sort of editing Narnia a little bit and saying, uh, "You maybe, you know, force a few too many inside jokes and like weird self consciousness, you know, mm -hmm. in into into Narnia, you know, here and here, and if you." cut those bits it would, it would probably work better but yeah to keep from being sort of cutesy right when you're writing a children's book and of course like yeah go ahead well this is not it's nowhere near mallory i suppose but it's not the easiest like language and dialogue to read is it yeah because because he's still emulating mallory and detroit and all, all those guys but, yeah, again, I think that still speaks to, okay, kids are smart. Yeah. They're, they're not little, little idiots that we think of them nowadays or whatever. Right, okay. right. Yeah, I mean, so it is, it is difficult to, it's difficult just to publish if you're not, not, not just, not just with kids, but with, you know, any any audience because of the extent to which publishers assume that most of your readers don't really want to read 
right? And and would rather be, you know, watching Netflix or something like that, right? And and so, you know, it's the same with with kids, you know, some of the stuff that's get that gets pushed by, you know, even very well-meaning like librarians, right? On on kids is full of stupid potty humor and uh, you know, and goofy drawings and kids love it you know they eat it up like candy because that's kind of what it is it sort of has the nutritional value mentally of candy and then everyone sort of applauds and says oh wow they're reading look at that they're not looking at a screen that's amazing you know and yeah but but you've kind of they might as well be almost (laughs) at that point right Uh, because it's just not that um, it will I will admit that as as a kid, like I guess seven, eight, nine, I really my brother and I loved a comic strip called Captain Underpants. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's but, exactly the kind of stuff I'm talking about, though. Yeah, uh, you but, said that. That just came in my head, and I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, <laughs> that's not. <Yeah>. But <laughs> it's good that your tastes matured, right? Clearly yeah. in uh, over time, you know, I guess if, if Dave Pilkey is what you need to, to get you, you know, into, in the door, then, then it's not, it's not that bad. And I definitely, you know, growing up, I read tons of comic books, right. Just, just all the time. I think part of the difference that comic, comic book writers had something to prove because they were just comic book writers. So a lot of times okay, they throw yeah. in a lot of like, you know, fairly fancy vocabulary and, and. And so sometimes the writing was not horrible, yeah. but, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I probably shouldn't hate on the, the Dave Pilkies of the world, but that said, I prefer my kids to read Roger Lancelin Green to Dave Pilkey or, or yeah. whatever else, if, if they can manage it. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, you you cause... definitely want them reading Narnia or this or something other than Dave Pilkey, but yeah, yeah. Not that Dave Pilkey's horrible, but yeah. So here's how Mallory writes the, the part that I just read. Okay. So let's see. So they rode till they come to a lock. The witch was a fire of water and broad. And in the midst, Arthur was wire of an arm clothed in wicked summit that held a fire sword in that hand. Lo, said Merlion, yonder is the sword that I spoke of. So with that, they saw a damsel going upon the lock. What damsel is that? said Arthur. That is the laddie of the lock, said Merlion. There is a great rock, and therein is a spire, a palace as only on earth, and richly beside. And this damsel will come to you Anon, and then speak ye fair to her, that she may give you that sword. So anon come this damsel to Arthur, and sowled him, and hey her again. Damsel, said Arthur, what sword is that yonder, that the arm holdeth above in the water? He would it were mean, for I have no sword. Sir Arthur, said the damsel, that sword is mean, and if you will give me a gift, when he ask it you, you shall have it. Bear me faith, said Arthur. He will give you what gift that you will ask. Anyway, on on it goes. So 
So it's still like it's we could basically tell what's going on, right? Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, Green cleans it up a bit, right, and makes it sound this sort of like almost a, in some ways a little more like Shakespeare than than the way that than the way that Mallory writes it. Yeah. There, there's an idea of like this is the way knights of old spoke properly. It reminds me a lot of the way the kids in Narnia speak, the kids at the end of the, the Pevensies at the end of the Lion, Lich, and Wardrobe. Once they've been in Narnia for a long time, they mm-hmm. speak a lot like Green's people, right? Damsel, said Arthur, that is indeed my wish. For long I have guarded the swords of the Lady of the Lake. Give me but a gift when I shall come to ask you for one, and the sword shall be yours, yeah. right? So elevated, but doesn't sound like Middle English verging into early modern English. Anything else about this part? Well, I had always, well, not always, but from when I was a kid, I always thought the sword in the stone and Ex- the Excalibur were the same thing. And then I read this kid's version of the story of them getting it out of the lake. And I'm like, no, that's not Excalibur. What are you? <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I think we covered it pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And and that's something that Mallory has to deal with. And I do not know if the French prose romances have two that, that Mallory draws upon have two findings of the, the sword, right? I, I, but whoever first put in two swords it's it's because there are two different stories about how arthur gets his magical sword and they're both well known and you have yeah. to try to harmonize them mm-hmm. you've got the sword that makes him king and then you've got the sword excalibur given to him by by the lady of the lake now of course you know monty python confites them Mr. again be quiet. i order you to be quiet order who does he think he is <laughs> i'm your king well i didn't vote for you you don't vote for kings well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet. Yeah. Um, uh, I all I remember from that scene is I didn't vote for you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They've got the motif of the broken sword. That's the only thing I could think of that shows up in other Inklings' works from from this. I'm sure there are other things, but but does um, Williams ever mention it or? Mention Excalibur? Well, like how he got it or anything? Oh, how he got the sword? I don't believe so. Although, you know, I am I am not the most attentive reader of Williams's poetry. Um, yeah, it's so, fine. So it, may, it may be that I missed something. So, you know, anybody can feel free to correct me. But I, I don't remember Williams really touching on the, you know, how, how Arthur got his sword. But he's he's a lot more interested in like you know things like holy trigonometry and <laughs> whatever else. Okay, so we're not going to talk about Sir Gowan and the Green Knight because we are way over time. But we will talk about Sir Percival of Wales. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, by the way, we're not going to you know read any of the passages. It is a great, great, great Middle English poem. Absolutely worth reading. Green 
I like how he simplifies Mallory. It rubs me the wrong way, the way he simplifies Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, because it is just such a great story, just as it is. And he makes some changes that I'm not terribly happy about. But, you know, he he de- he weaves it into the rest of the main Arthurian narrative, and that's good, and that's important, and I'm glad he does that. So, so Percival of Wales, you said you wanted to make sure to talk about that. And you said it was because you'd encountered a version of this story, right? But it may not have been Green's story when you originally encountered it. I think it was a version. It was based on Chrétien de Troyes. And I mean, it had an ending. I think, I don't know if I've mentioned this name on the podcast, but the, I know I've mentioned the team once. This guy who has the stage name Ods Bodkin, he is. If you can get a hold of any of his, like, retellings of myths, like the Odyssey or Hercules, or for me, my first exposure to him doing myths was Sir Percival and the Fisher King. But that one is very okay. much that one is very much Detroit and the French because it's not it's not a a goblet, it's a bull. And yep. most of the Christian references have been taken out. Because I, yep. I know, yeah, I know that I guess Bodkin didn't want to put that in there. So, and the original French story, I don't think had as many like holy illusions or yeah, but yeah, that was. It was also incredibly impactful for me because he not he narrates it, but he not only narrates it, he plays music while he's doing it, like a harp or a guitar. Or, oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. And it was really impactful for me because I was like 15 years old and it's this coming of age story. And I absolutely yes. I absolutely identified and loved that version, but but I do like this version too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. That's, that's all just such great setup for me going way off the rails and (laughs) digressing, you know, even more because I love Percival. It's, it's such a great story and, and Mm -hmm. green almost, he does a great job with it. He can't quite do it justice here. I I don't think anyway, but, but you almost can't. Yeah. So, so yes, Percival, big time coming of age story. And Odds Bodkin, who hopefully we can link to in the show notes so that people can check that out because I'm intrigued as well about his version of, of Percival. He's not wrong to take the idea that the Grail was like, you know, the the cup of Christ at the Last Supper or the cup that caught Christ's blood or whatever else, because those ideas did not show up until the various continuations of the grail story all you get Clétien finished quite a few arthurian stories but all you get in percival is an unfinished story about a young welsh knight and there are lots and lots and lots of welsh jokes all throughout Clétien, which green mostly seems to remove and i don't know if it's because green lived so close to wales or 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 what but yeah he's he's not as into just kind of laughing 
at Percival as as Katian seems to be. But but yeah, Percival's like this young, super strong, fairly simple young guy who has no idea about knights or anything. We read, you know, Green's version of the Percival myth where Percival mistakes the mistakes the knights for angels, you know, and his mother his, his mother in in Katian, his mother's like, "No, no, 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 no. Please don't go be a knight. Please, please, please don't go be a knight. My husband, your father was a knight. Your brothers were all knights." They all died, so I raised you in complete ignorance on purpose, so that you would not go and join, you know, and 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 be a yeah. knight because I knew that like it was in your blood. And and please, my son, you're the last one I have. And then Clutian's like, Percival, listen to none of this. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, he's uh, a teenager. No, none of us listen to yeah. teenagers. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. And so Percival, like over and over again makes these stupid choices and you're supposed to laugh at him like so for example green in his retelling of the percival myth has percival come on this come upon this pavilion and there's a there's a young woman who is sleeping and percival's like oh she's so beautiful and he kisses her in her sleep, you know, Sleeping Beauty style. Yeah, it's creepy, but whatever. This is, you know, fairy tale kind of kind of thing, right? And then changes his ring with her ring, right? And then off he goes. And then Roger Linson Green makes him, makes her somehow long term, yeah, his love interest in the Grail Maiden, and she finds a way to connect all these dots that aren't, isn't uh, connecting the original source material, and things like end up okay, right? Yes. In the original Percival story, he talks to his mom and his mom's like, all right, so listen, here's how you act in a chivalrous way. If you're really serious about this night, night thing, you need to give girls only a kiss, you know, nothing more if you're interested in them and you need to, yeah, exchange rings or whatever else. And so he rides into this pavilion and he does have a horse in, in, in the green version. He does not have a horse at this point, but in, 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 in cut in, he does. So he comes into this pavilion. There's a girl there. He kind of likes the girl. And he says to her, my mother said that if I, that if I see a girl that I like, I'm to kiss her and take her ring. And exactly. so, so he just like plants one on her and takes a <laughs> ring and she's sobbing because that's the ring that her actual boyfriend, her paramour yeah. gave her and she's going to be in big trouble when he finds it gone. And so yeah. he absolutely does punish her and shames her and makes her walk because he's like, I know that you gave that ring to somebody and you know, you're in trouble now. Oh, and did he really take a kiss from you by force? I don't think so. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so it just everywhere Percival goes, he causes problems he up, yeah. because he doesn't know really how to act like a, a knight because he's this wild Welsh boy, right. Yeah. Who, who wasn't brought up uh, to be uh, an aristocrat. Um, so in the original story as well, Sir, or he's not even Sir yet, Percival, who who he's not even given a name at this point either. He doesn't know his own name. He's just this wild Welsh boy who left his mama and and 
you know, is only he's kind of a Forrest Gump figure, like very much a Forrest Gump figure, like yeah. even down to like Mama always said this or Mama always said that, right? Um, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah, he does that. Um, oh boy! And so he ends up in Arthur's court, and he just rides his horse right into the court. You know, which which like is the height of rudeness. You don't ride your horse into the court. You you dismount and let the stable boy take it to the stable but he rides right into where everybody's eating you know on his horse and he's like hey i'm looking for the king who makes knights because i want to be a knight and and then a similar thing happens with the red knight as in as in green right and he and he and he kills him no problem because he's just kind of a prodigy right he he's really good at killing people it turns out but you're hunting thing right like he's Mm -hmm. he it's kind of at least the version i had before he was really good at hunting and throwing his spear and so what do you do when somebody's attacking you you throw your spear and that's how he kills him in this book as well i think yeah yep yep so he's really you know the the main source of the comedy in katian is that yeah he's really good at at all this stuff he takes to it really naturally but he hasn't been brought up well or he hasn't been brought up the way a knight's supposed to be brought up he had no idea till five minutes ago that there even were knights he's just scarily good at being a knight somehow just not good at the politeness part right so he 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 has this guy this happens in the green version too he has this uncle kind of take him under his take him under his wing give him some advice and he says hey man like you shouldn't speak when the occasion calls for silence, you know, and, and, and do, do not like kiss women just willy nilly, just because you like them. That's don't do that. That's, that's not good. Don't and, talk uh, about mama all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Please don't, please don't tell everybody that your mother said this, or your mother said that. So he kind of, he kind of mentors him a little bit. Right. And so far so good, mm-hmm. but then Percival ends up coming to, strange places like the grail castle Mm. and suddenly we're in the same position that percival is in has been in throughout the whole book because we don't know what the right thing to do is either and he goes to the court of this fisher king and there's this procession and one of the things in the procession is a spear and one of the things in the procession is a dish, a grail that holds meat, right? Mm-hmm. And he's really puzzled by all this, but he just remembers Gornemont's advice, right? Which is don't talk too quickly, right? Which yeah. is generally good advice, you know? <laughs> so he doesn't talk. No. And then come to find out the next morning that was ruinous. He should have asked. And, yeah. and at this point, we're kind of on the same page as him because we're like, well, why? I don't understand this. This doesn't make exactly. any sense. Yeah. And so um, anyway, so so Green Green sticks to a lot of this with Percival, but some of it he does change and he tries to make it a little easier to understand and he finishes the story or he kind of weaves the story into the whole sort of story of Arthur and his knights, right? But but yeah, he meets Blanchefleur at the Grail Castle here. And, and what I think Green does really well is gives us kind of a sense of the strange and the sense of the wondrous here right yeah so he he comes in 
and this is green again. It's not cut in. Percival walked slowly up the hall and stood looking about him. On a little table not far from the fire, he saw laid out a set of great ivory chessmen with a chair drawn up on one side as if ready for a game. While still wondering what all this might mean, Percival sat down in the chair, and presently he reached out idly and moved a white pawn forward two squares on the board. At once a red pawn moved forward by itself. Percival was alert in an instant, but all was quiet. There was not even the sound of any breath but his own. So he moved another piece, and immediately a red piece was moved also. Percival moved again as if playing, and behold, the red pieces moved in turn so cunningly that in a very few minutes he saw that he was checkmated. Swiftly he rearranged the pieces, and this time the red moved first, and the second game was played, which Percival lost also. A third time this happened, and Percival rose in a sudden fury, drawing his sword to crush the pieces and hack the board. Right, so... Yeah. They kind of love this chess game. I don't remember it being in Katian. Yeah. It's a fairly long romance, so I might just be misremembering, but it does convey like kind of the strangeness of this sort of fairy environment, right? That, that this is a place where wonders are, no, are pretty normal and, and where things just happen without necessarily any explanation, like, like a chess game that plays by itself. And I also love that this gives a further sense of Percival's sort of youthful hot-headedness, right? And oh yeah. And yeah, brashness yeah. that he's about to like destroy the chessboard because it keeps beating him. So like that's super fun. When he loses a game or whatever. Yeah. He's yeah. gonna flip the ball. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very much in keeping with Percival's characterization and Katian as well. So that's a place where Green sort of leans into that. Okay. Uh, which I like. But as he did so, as he was about to you know, split the chessboard. A damsel ran suddenly into the room. Hold your hands, Sir Knight, she cried. If you strike at these magic chess pieces, a terrible evil will befall you. Who are you, lady? Asked Percival. I'm Blanchefleur, she answered. And as she spoke, she came forward into the light of the candles, which stood near to the chess table. And with a sudden gasp of wonder and joy, Percival knew her for the maiden in the pavilion. In Clatin, she is not the maiden in the pavilion. No, um, it's a different, yeah. She's just a maiden who whose chances of happiness he ruined because he was a klutz. Um, (laughs) But, but Blanchefleur, you know, he, he, he does have kind of like a, a thing with, with Mm -hmm. the, the woman in the grail castle, if I'm remembering correctly, I think maybe it's a, maybe it's another castle. Maybe, maybe his princess is in another castle. Well, in the version that I was talking about, he definitely has an attraction to her. Yeah. Like the, there's never any sex scene or anything, but right. yeah, it's very, very clear. Like, I love you. I, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So he recognizes his diamond ring. He held out his hand to her and saw her suddenly pause as she recognized her own ring, which he still wore. Lady Blanchefleur, he said gently, I have sought for you long. My name is Percival and I beg you to pardon me for the wrong I did you, meaning no wrong when I took this ring from you as you slept and took also one kiss from your lips. So in green, he realizes that he did not behave so nobly, even though in green, he behaved far more nobly than the original version of Percival. But uh, so Percival, she answered gently, you know, basically says, as it happens, you know, I've dreamed about you every night, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty in on on this. So, yeah. So yeah. So then we have uh, Percival basically proposes to her, and then Blanchefleur laid her hand 
in his with never a word, and as she touched him, suddenly a roar of thunder shook the castle. The great door of the hall flew open, and a strange damsel dressed and veiled in white walked slowly into the hall, holding aloft a great goblet or grail covered in a cloth. A light shone from within the grail, so bright that no man might look upon it, and yet it was with another and, and a holy awe that Percival sank to his knees and bowed his head into, in his hands. A second veiled woman followed the first, bearing a golden platter, and a third followed her, carrying a spear with a point of white light from which dripped blood that vanished ere it touched the floor. As they passed up the hall and round the table where Percival and Blanchefleur knelt, the whole room seemed to be filled with sweet scents of roses and spices. And when the procession of the grail had passed down the hall once more and out of the door, which closed again behind them, there fell upon Percival a peace of heart that passed all understanding and a great joy. The Holy Grail draws near to Logris, said Blanchefleur. Ask me no more concerning what you have seen, for the time has not yet come. One other must enter this castle and see it, and that is Sir Launcelot of the Lake. But Percival, you are more blessed than he, for through him shall come the ending of the glory of Logris, though in Logris there has so far been none so glorious as he, save only Gawain. Go you now to Camelot and wait for the coming of Galahad. On the day when he sits in the Siege Perilous, you shall see the Holy Grail once more. So, anyway, Percival ends up saying, no, 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 I'm going to go get the Grail myself, which again, like that's in keeping with Percival's with him being like uh, brash nature. Yeah. 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 So he runs out and goes to find the Grail. And by the time he comes to himself, he realizes he's lost the Grail maiden who he just like kind of pledged his troth to. And, you know, then goes out running around looking for him. And that's when the knights from the round table find him saying, oh, yeah, that's the guy who because, oh, this is one thing that I really do like about Green's retelling of King Arthur, of, of, yeah. of Percival, because part of the reason he set out from Arthur's court was that the Red Knight, who he killed, stole Arthur's goblet, right? So mm -hmm. he's been carrying around ever since he killed that knight, Arthur's goblet in his purse, right? Ready to give it back to Arthur. And at this moment, he's just lost his love as a result of like running out after, you know, after the grail and trying to find the grail. So it's this, it's this neat, like, you know, parallel thing where he's, where the, the whole thing that spurred this adventure was him trying to find a goblet and he finds this much greater goblet, right? That he can't actually achieve and get. But, uh, but yeah, it's neat that Green does this. And I'm pretty sure Green's the one that comes up with that I, uh, idea because in, in the original Percival, there's no goblet that the Red Knight steals. But, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a cool idea. Let's see. Yeah, so, so Green, I mean, weaves this nicely into the rest of the arc of the Holy Grail quest, which Mallory certainly doesn't pick up on the Cretian version at all of Percival, even though Percival's a character in the, in the Holy Grail arc that, that Mallory puts in, in Mortartur. So, you know, props to Green for bringing in Cretian's story in that way, even if he changes it a little bit. And Cretian's story, like, we don't know why the Grail is important. We don't know that yeah. it's some kind of holy relic. In fact, it may not be the way that Cretian 
conceived of it. There's no sacred language involved. That's all stuff that happens afterwards. The grail is just a dish. It's not even a cup in in Kletian. It's a dish that holds meat. Like some kind of pre-Christian cauldron of plenty thing? Yeah, people have speculated a lot about that, right? And, And certainly that's there. It's just a matter of I, I mean, I don't know that that's what Katian was thinking of, right? But nah. but maybe maybe he was thinking of myths or stories or romances related to, you know, that in some way maybe. descended from a cauldron of plenty or the cauldron of Anuin or, yeah. Uh, yeah, who knows what else. I also love Percival, which is why I wanted to make sure that we get that get to that but we are we are pretty far over time so yeah let's see we wanted to talk a little bit about the end of the quest of the holy grail but but we may just have to put that on hold one thing yeah do do these does the holy grail stuff does it remind you of any any works of like from from the other inklings well the only one i really know i know tolkien didn't put any in his poem because he didn't like it being Christianized <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. I guess that's another pure, purest thing. But Well, I mean, Lewis inkling... didn't either, Sorry. right? No. Because if you're doing well, a secondary world, but he did have relics at the end of the world, right? Oh, yeah. I, I forgot. Yeah, he does. But the one I was thinking of was War in Heaven by Charles Williams. Mm-hmm. It's very, I mean... It doesn't have all the dark stuff that War in Heaven has. Like, there aren't people trying to get it so they can own it or whatever. But, yeah, just this. And then, even though we didn't get to it, the end of the quest very strongly reminded me of the ending to War in Heaven, where I guess some... Prester John, who's like this mythical figure, shows up and gives wonderful assurances to the good guys and basically says to the bad guys, you're in such big trouble, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I. It's weird because the Grail story itself and the connection with Joseph of Arimathea and everything... I like that it that it kind of ties in Christianity more tightly to the Arthurian thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not the Grail itself, but Galahad. Actually, like I've actually read a a pretty good British kids book that's very funny, but one of the characters is trying to explain my friend didn't do this. He wouldn't do this because it's not Galahad like and. The headmaster who he's talking to says, forgive the inadequacy of my understanding, but I fail to perceive what that worthy but sadly boring representative of the matter of Britain has to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> but just and the way the narrator said it was brilliant, that worthy but sadly boring, <laughs> which <laughs> it's, yeah, I that's the thing about Gohan. I'm like, he's perfect. He has no struggles. He has nothing like yeah that's why he annoys me <laughs> but yeah uh, yeah yeah no galahad's interesting i mean in that and and originally i mean in the original romances of about the grail right it was percival 
right? He was yeah. the one that, you know, achieved the grail or was most involved with the, with the grail. And then I think probably the, my memory serves, it's the French prose romances that bring in Galahad, but I might be incorrect there. But uh, yeah, you, yeah, Galahad, way less interesting than Percival, right? And, and, and it's almost like he's just kind of created to be someone who would be worthy to achieve the grail and, and yeah. their idea of what a worthy person would be, right? And better than um, his father. Yeah. But, yeah. Man. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, he is, you know, he's born out of wedlock. So that's one yeah. thing that's interesting about him that, that sort of makes the veneer of perfection maybe not quite so yeah. perfect. But that's yeah. True. That's true. He's poor. He's born out of wedlock to a father who's in love with another woman besides his his mother. So yeah. so there's that too, right? But uh, yeah, let's see. Gosh, the the thing the thing that a lot of these passages about the Grail especially remind me of is the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's a kind of sense of wonder and and a like kind of like holiness meets fairy sort of sort of sense to it all right there there's this real like kind of celtic enchantment combined with you know combined with medieval catholicism that's really that's really strong here and just kind of like wonderful things happening that it, that sure. yeah go ahead it keeps building and building like the sense of wonder mm -hmm. like okay we're not in narnia anymore we are not on the sea anymore we're going up to heaven and it's just such yeah. wonderful language and descriptions. Yeah. I just, yeah. I'm like, why can't I be there? I mean, I think, I think Lewis accomplishes something really amazing in the last battle when we see heaven there. Oh, and yeah. it's very like nice and platonic and, you know, everything else, but it doesn't accomplish the same sort of alien wonder that you get at the end of the voyage of the dawn treader that i think is also here in you know green green captures it pretty nicely mm -hmm. in in the parts about the grail but but yeah for me that's that's an interesting sort of place where you have both kind of the holy and and the fairy converging and and then of course as in mallory once the grail is achieved by galahad it almost sort of empties the court of its of its virtue right a little bit like the place of the lion to yeah. go back to charles williams right and then we're just kind of left with you know adultery and treachery with you know lancelot and then with mordred but but yeah king arthur and his knights of the round table by roger lanson green excellent little primer and great introduction i think for kids now as well especially kids who can be encouraged to read you know, real kids books, a good primer on, on Arthur and, and about this, this mythos. So, so yeah, any final thoughts that you have uh, before we, before we end? I had one, but it may go on a bit. <laughs> yeah, please. I was trying to think before I was like, okay, what's the underlying message? What's the theme that he's trying to get? And all I could see was the themes that are already in the original Mallory and others but but then i thought like he 
he keeps bringing up, and he doesn't shove it right in your face, but he keeps bringing up like holy logres, holy Kabbalah, holy, um, and like there's some of the descriptions, like it it shone like a, a star of Bethlehem between the darkness that was coming down on it, and I was I was wondering, is Camelot in this kind of like a kingdom of heaven that humans are setting up and maybe maybe that's why it fails not how it fails how it fails is Lancelot but I think it might be why it fails is because they have they're doing their best and that's all you can do and they're doing it with a very Christ-like Arthur. But he's not Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I was just wondering, are are we just as human beings doomed to fail at that? Because we're not the ones who are supposed to be setting it up. Yeah. Man, that's a really big question to and <laughs> I think that's a, that's a that's a great question. I don't know if Green intended that to be the question. Yeah, could, yeah. I'd say in part it depends on your eschatology, right? Mm-hmm. And and it depends on whether you think that God can work through humans to transform this world slowly into a more holy place that is where where Christ eventually will come to reign as kind of the crowning. Of you know, right. of of good things that God has been doing through people and through his church for, you know, for for ages or, or whatever else. People in government had a part to play oh, yeah. in helping establish righteousness in the earth, right? Yeah. Even if their efforts were, like, eventually doomed, right? Or, or, or doomed until christ comes back or something like that yeah. right because we all die i don't know yeah. but but yeah it's 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 an interesting question i think it's an important one for christians to think about you know and 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 i think certainly green i don't know if he'd read charles williams but well, he, he does refer does, to him he does mention charles williams in his author's note yep so he was at least aware of Williams, but yeah, I don't know if he'd read him or, or yeah, yeah. Probably most likely read Tennyson's Idols of the King, right? So so yeah, he he was, you know, just based on Tennyson and Williams, I mean, there's certainly a lot of spiritual meaning to Logris, right? Oh, and yeah. and to and to what Arthur is doing. Yeah, but whether Arthur ever had a shot, right? Establishing something like a kingdom of heaven. Yeah. is or whether he will you know one yeah. day in the future right because there's still the the myth that and it seems to me that mallory does not endorse it quite as much as as green does here but there is a there is a myth that arthur will you know return and 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 bring about kind of a renewed britain right yeah. and then a renewed state of affairs um, and, and lewis and the ransom trilogy really kind of uh, plays with that a lot so it's it's an interesting idea but yeah you can use arthur to support a number of different 
views about the relationship between the church and yeah. and and God and the state, right, and then the culture. I guess that is pretty important because bishops historically crown kings and stuff. So it's kind of like the king acknowledging, okay, God is the actual king. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, they said it right there at the beginning of Percival, right? That, That we read at the top when Percival thinks that the, that the knights are angels and he says, do you serve the king of heaven? And they say, well, yeah, kind of. You know, we yeah. we serve we serve King Arthur, and he serves the King of Heaven, right? So, yeah, there's there's this idea that the yeah that that rulers need not be neutral, right? But but should help to establish God's justice on earth, which is which is which is yeah, which is a good sounding mm-hmm. idea. It gets complicated. When, yeah. when you then apply it to a cosmopolitan society that is yeah. founded on, uh, you know, enlightenment principles that have tended to work pretty well for it and finding justice as well. But, but yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. Well, listeners, what do you think? We'd, we'd love to know. And, and we'd also love to know if there are any other minor inklings that, you think we should read and talk about. So please do, you know, email us inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com if there are some that you would really like to see covered. Also, you know, please do give us a rating on iTunes, giving us ratings, giving us like five-star ratings, especially if you feel, if you're feeling five-starry about our podcast, that really does help the listenership to grow. And, and, and that, and that matters really for longevity of this of this podcast but thank you all for joining us um today eric thank you so much for joining and for suggesting we talk about green yeah no problem thanks for allowing me to be on here of course of course thank you for taking time out of your day to come on and uh, all right well you know i i'd love to say some sort of catchy farewell that invokes the once and future king but i can't think of one so for now i'll just say see you all next time and thanks for joining us ta-ta all this encounter full of joy and scheduled on the decent plan with here an addict of tolkien there a Charles Williams stand. Old woman! Man! Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37, I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you ma'am. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice.